You are listening to a sermon from the Mulvane Church of Christ in Mulvane, Kansas. Subscribe in your favorite podcatching app or find and listen to any sermon online at mulvanechurch.com slash sermons. Also resuming, as you see today, our study of John, which the last time we were together on this, it was in, well, it was Easter Sunday. It was the last time we were together on John. And if we recall, we were taking a, a guided tour to belief as John would guide us through his narrative in the life of Christ. And we called it the guided tour to belief because 98 times in the Gospel of John, belief is mentioned in one way or another. Uh, some form of the word uh, uh, as uh, past or present or continuing uh, as, as the action that's being sought or uh, the thing that people are not doing as well. But in some way or another, 98 different kinds, 98 different mentions of belief. And so far we studied in chapter 1, we studied the prologue, that uh, uh, the Word, the eternal Word was with God, and uh, He is Jesus, now uh, come in the flesh to, to be with us. Uh, then we saw... Uh, at the end of chapter 1, uh, and some of chapter 2 as well, the witness of John the Baptist. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus' first recorded miracle at Cana of Galilee. He made water to wine uh, to help those uh, friends of his, or at least friends of the family. Uh, but uh, uh, he, he gave, made water to wine to help those people out and did an amazing a miracle there. And then he took his first trip to Jerusalem, and uh, that's where uh, he ran out the money changers. And this story today of Nicodemus coming is at the same occasion, the same trip. And the uh, meeting that he had, an interaction with the authorities that he had, is necessary background uh, for the things that happen in chapter 3. And so Jesus uh, came to uh, the first time in his ministry, and we're thankful that John records uh, the four trips that Jesus makes on the fourth trip to um, Jerusalem for the Passover, he'll be put to death. So it's three years from this event, and in all, that encompasses the four Passovers, encompasses three years, plus the few months before that so far Jesus has been working. When he went down there from his very first trip, he intentionally avoided the leadership. The, the high priest, the, the entire priestly bureaucracy and all of that that went with running of the temple and all of those people who uh, were in the same city uh, and were uh, close to the Herods, uh, those with political power as well as uh, religious power. So the civic and religious powers Jesus avoided. He did not come and say, hey, I'm the Messiah. I'm here to, to help you all out. Or let's sit down and have a joint action plan. You guys got the temple. I got the messiahship. Let's see what we can do together. And what we found is he, he found them uh, as he entered the temple. Uh, he found them. And of course, he'd been coming not in his role as messiah, but coming as normal average, you know, uh, 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 Joseph citizen. Uh, would that have any Joseph citizen? He'd been coming just as Joseph citizen to the temple for the things for years, uh, but not in his, uh, his messianic role. But he knew those 
Uh, money changers are there. They'd been there all his life. He knew those guys cheating the people uh, with the animals and the like uh, had been there, and he rebuked all of that, and he ran those people out of the, out of the temple, saying in John two sixteen, "Take these things away. Stop making my father's house a place of business." He made the scourge of cords. He ran them all out, and then they come and challenge him, say, "Hey, hold on, what are you doing? By what authority do you do this?" and uh, he answered back with a sort of, at the time, what was an enigmatic answer. Destroy this temple, and in three days I'll raise it up. Now, there's been, through most of John, and we, we, we're going to try to do this, we try to explain John in the context of the situation at hand, at the situation of where things were. Here at the very first trip to Jerusalem, uh, Jesus uh, the fact that he's not working with the priest and the like, that's important. But all of the things that come later uh, in the latter part of the Gospels, well, as we read through that, we don't know that yet, right? And so uh, we're trying not to always just read ahead. Uh, but in this case, John goes ahead and reads for us. And John goes ahead and spoils the ending. Uh, he says uh, that uh, after he was raised from the dead, his disciples said, uh, remembered this, and they believed the Scripture and what Jesus said. And so it's impossible not to understand the end of the story, even as John is telling it from the beginning. Even John, at the beginning, tells us some of the end of the story, right? Because as John writes this, what does everybody know? Right? So there's not really an ending to spoil here, is there? Because they knew the ending. So he answers that, which at the time, and for several years, would have remained a completely enigmatic statement. I wonder what that meant. And then one day he comes back from the dead and they go, oh, I know, that's what he meant back there. All right, so that's our situation. And we note again that Jesus then went out with the people. He's with the people, the pilgrims in Jerusalem, and with them he's doing miracles. And so verse 23, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name, observing the signs which he was doing. So at the feast, they're observing, and he's doing miracles. But how many is he doing there uh, in the temple? Just imagine if he would have asked the, the temple authorities, hey, could you guys set up a stage over here on the left somewhere, right? I'll, I'll be there two at four and six. I'll be there three times on the Sabbath. Just imagine the crowds. Imagine the publicity. But no, he, he, doesn't, he doesn't work with those people whatsoever. He doesn't put on a show for them. And it said he was not entrusting himself to them, for he knew all men. So of the authorities in particular, he was not entrusting himself, he was not opening himself up, he was not doing anything with that group of people. He was deliberately working around them. He was deliberately working without them. And soon in his ministry, he'll be working directly contrary to them as they oppose him and his work. But not everyone in that regime was corrupt and uncooperative. There was a man with some sense of good judgment. There was a man there who could read uh, the signs of the time. There was a man there who could reason logically and somewhat spiritually. And so the ruler came to Jesus by night. Again, he comes at night because already at this very first trip, what do we have? At this very first trip, we already have the need to visit Jesus privately. 
He can't and won't go visit Jesus publicly. And so he comes discreetly, and he comes as one of the leadership who is not opposed to Jesus. He comes as an inquirer. I don't know if he comes as a true seeker and a real desire to be Jesus' disciple yet. I think eventually he becomes that. But he comes as an inquirer. Uh, He comes as one uh, uh, seeking more information. And so verse 1 of chapter 3, Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher. No one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. So he's not being an opponent. He's not presenting as an enemy. And he's not, I don't think he's a false front. He's not coming as an enemy. He, he's not coming as a skeptic. He's not coming as an antagonist. I think he comes as he says, we know that you must be from God. Now, whether that's kind of the royal we, meaning pretty much me, uh, or whether that's some other people that he was speaking to, and I think it's probably that, some friends of his, uh, maybe family members, maybe some close colleagues. I'm not sure who the rest of the we would be, but uh, he and some other people have come to the obvious realization that this man doing miracles must be from God. This is the same thing the blind man uh, concluded and speaks about in chapter 9. Uh, it says in John 9 and 29, the opponents of Jesus pressing the blind man who was healed. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we don't know where he's from. And then that man healed said, well, this is an amazing thing, John nine thirty. You don't know where he's from, but he's opened my eyes. We know that God doesn't hear sinners, but if anyone is God-fearing and does his will, he hears him. Since the beginning of time, it's never been heard of that anyone opens the eyes of a person born blind. But this man, if he weren't from God, he couldn't do anything. And so Nicodemus and the blind men, they're singing from the same page in the hymnal. These are miracles. If these are miracles, ergo, these things are from God. Jesus made the same argument in the witnesses' sermon, as we'll get to later in chapter 5. The testimony which I have is greater than the testimony of John, even the testimony of the great prophet. I have a better testimony. The works which the Father has given me to do, the very works I do, testify of me that the Father sent me. And so just a modicum of spiritual discernment and the understanding that these miracles are miraculous, that these are works of God, means this is a man from God. So Nicodemus comes. And then based on that, they are going to have a real and instructive discussion. Jesus brings up the topic, and they discuss it. John 3.3, 3, Jesus answered him when he said, well, you know, you must be from God. He said, truly, truly, I say to you, unless as one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So you're interested in the things of God. I want to tell you now the kingdom of God, and truly, truly... Now, it's interesting, that's the same word there is amen. We always put amen at the end. Uh, and, and also, uh, always, when somebody else is speaking, wait till they're fully done before you say amen, right? But with Jesus, the amen can go at the front. The amen can start it, because 
He's always true. So truly, truly, amen, amen. Verily, verily, I say to you, you're interested in the kingdom, you're interested in the things of God, you won't see the kingdom of God without being born again. And that starts the discussion. Uh, how can a man be born when he is old? And so we're now going to have a discussion. We're going to have a discussion about salvation. But we start with the premise, and Nicodemus starts with the premise, and this is why it becomes such a profitable discussion. This becomes a profitable discussion because he understands that Jesus is from God. I don't know any way to have a profitable discussion about salvation without that premise, without the understanding that Jesus is from God. So Jesus will go on to tell him things beyond his understanding, give him explanation when he doesn't understand so that he might believe and know better. But twice, twice during the discussion, we'll notice that he has the same question as Mary and the same question as Zachariah, which is the question, how? How can this be? That's what Mary said. How can this be because I'm a virgin? Zachariah said, how can this be? How can I know for certain? Because I am old. And this Nicodemus says, how can this be uh, that we have another birth? Now, I think this is more the how question like Mary asked. Uh, maybe it's somewhere in between. He's definitely not asking quite the same uh, attitude and tone as Zechariah asked. How can I know for sure? Because he doesn't get struck uh, dumb for nine months or anything like that, does he? <laughs> There's no terrible rebuke uh, for unbelief at this question of how. Uh, there's also not near uh, the uh, sympathetic response and the blessing that Mary gets. So maybe this question of how is somewhere in between those two. But this leads to the first discussion in John about salvation. And it'll go down to verse 15. And then somewhere around the end of verse 15 or so, and it depends on, if you have a red letter translation Bible, if you're one of those folks who likes a red letter Bible, and I, I, if I had the choice, if the two Bibles are the same, one's red and one's not, I'll take the red one, but I don't have to have a red letter Bible. But if you've got a red letter Bible, uh, your people who put things in red may uh, switch off the red at verse 15, or they may not switch off the red to verse 21. Somewhere around in there here, uh, it, it seems like maybe Jesus stops talking and John does. But what we have is we have this discussion of salvation and then immediately following, and actually we're not even sure if Nicodemus is still there or if Jesus is still talking, but we get the most famous verse in the Bible, verse 16 and down to verse 21, in which we get a clear and full summary on the whole topic of salvation directly from the conversation that Nicodemus has, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And we know that. Uh, we know that passage. Whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. He who believes in him is not judged. And he who does not believe has been judged already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten son of God. This is judgment that the lights come to the world. And men love the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds are evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light, 
for the few that his deeds will be exposed. But he who practices truth comes to the light, so that his deeds may be manifest as having been wrought in God. So that is the discussion, that's the teaching that immediately follows the direct answer of the things to Nicodemus. And again, at that point, from verse 16 on, I'm not sure if Jesus is speaking or John is speaking. I don't know if that should be in red or if that should be in black. I do know it's inspired, so ultimately it doesn't matter. But we're going to have a discussion real early about salvation. And I want today to concentrate on what it is that Jesus taught Nicodemus. What did Jesus teach Nicodemus? And I want to do it in the context of what up till now, up till the point of this discussion, that could and should have been known. Now, Lord willing, next week, I'd like to talk about some other people who learned from this discussion, who probably certainly heard this discussion, the apostles. And based on what Jesus says here, what did the apostles do with this? But for today, I want to talk about what Jesus, in, in, the, in the moment at the garden, at this garden, what Jesus taught Nicodemus. I'm going to go ahead and give you what Jesus taught Nicodemus because, you know, again, spoilers, you know how this goes, right? You know how this goes. Jesus said, you've got to be born again. And he goes, huh? And then Jesus says, yeah, you've got to be born again, explaining it. The explanation is, you've got to be born of water and the Spirit. And then he kind of looks befuddled. And he doesn't say, he doesn't give an answer, but Jesus says, don't be amazed. So I think he's just sitting there looking amazed. And so Jesus gives a simplification of the answer. And the simplification of be born of water and the Spirit is be born of the Spirit. And then I think he's still a bit confused. He says, huh, how, what? And then Jesus says, don't you understand? You need to believe. So we have a teaching. We have an explanation. And then we have two simplifications of the teaching. So again, let me put it to you that this is how we're going to approach this. As an answer, as the teaching, as an explanation of the teaching, and then two simplifications of that teaching to the point where even if we don't get all of this, we should definitely understand and be like Nicodemus as he leaves, be able to take away one point. If nothing else, take away the point, believe in Jesus. So verse 3, again, truly, truly, I say to you, Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So this is going to be a new birth. And this is going to be a spiritual birth, as we know. Nicodemus, on first hearing, he didn't get that. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he's old? He can't enter a second time in his mother's womb and be born, can he? No, he can't. And Nicodemus, you should have known better. This is a little too physical thinking. This is a little too carnal thinking, a little too much of this world thinking, even for a man trained in the law, even for a man of the Old Testament, not understanding a, a, a rebirth, uh, that's a little bit shallow. Uh, for instance, here's a famous passage from the prophet Jeremiah. And you think about how the early chapters of Jeremiah would have been well known to the people of this society. What did this society spend every Sabbath doing? Anybody religious spent every Sabbath down at the synagogue. This society was a religious debating society. These are people who knew what the law said. This is a society where doctors and lawyers 
ran around, but they weren't doctors of medicine like we think of. They weren't physicians. And the lawyers weren't lawyers of a legal code like ours, but they were doctors and lawyers of what? The law of Moses. And also elevated in this, in, in this society were the scribes. And what did those guys sit around copying all day? Letters from one person to another? No, they copied the law of Moses. So this is a place where the law of Moses would be, would be well known. And so just imagine you get yourself among, I don't know, it's, it's eight weeks till football season, I'm having withdrawals. But you get yourself on a Saturday afternoon, and there is some, uh, some important football game with a team in red, for instance, and you're with other people who, who appreciate a thing like that. And, and you speak to them, and, and you know, people in that context, we, we can and we do, sometimes we drop the names of players who played for our team 25, 30 years ago. There's some of our players for our team, we know what major awards they won. We know even some of their records. We, we know uh, uh, all kinds of things about them. And so, you know, maybe we kind of uh, enjoy that about college football. Other groups of people, boy, pro football or baseball. You ever run into these people, they're baseball nuts? You know, they, they, they know what every record, the record of every team in the National League Central Division is. You know, and they remember who was the home run leader at All-Star break in 1974? You run across some of those guys, right? These guys, if you say Raleigh Fingers, they know what he is and what his mustache look like. These people know their baseball. Some people know their football. Some people know their comic books. Some people know all these things. What did these people know? They knew the law. And they knew the prophets. And so, when Jesus speaks in a spiritual sense as a Messiah, as a great prophet come to Israel, and soon to be obviously a candidate at least, to seriously be considered as a Messiah and the believers taking to be such, when he talks about a new birth, what do we have in the law that would help us think about things like that? Well, how about a new circumcision? Jeremiah 4.4, 4, circumcise yourselves to the Lord. Remove the foreskins of your heart. Men of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem, or else my wrath will go forth like fire and burn those uh, with none to quench because your deeds are evil. Circumcise your hearts, people. Remove the foreskin of your heart. When Jeremiah speaks about circumcising the heart, when he speaks about a figurative circumcision, did anybody miss that? No. And as a matter of fact, some very basic passages like Deuteronomy, and Deuteronomy would be one of the foundational books of their entire society, said this, Deuteronomy 10, 16, circumcise your hearts and stiffen your neck no longer. Or Deuteronomy 30, Moreover, the Lord God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, so you may live. There's the greatest commandment. How are you going to keep that if your heart's circumcised? And so if someone would talk about a circumcised heart, they've got a place to hang that. They've got Old Testament uh, teaching uh, of how to, how to view that and how to use that. And what the Apostle Paul say in Romans, one is not a Jew who's circumcised outwardly, but circumcised inwardly and he didn't make that concept up that's in Deuteronomy and that's in Jeremiah and so when Jesus talks about a new birth again he's the one who's out there with John the Baptist he and John are out there preaching the moral message of repentance John had been out there for a year Jesus had been out there four to six months wouldn't these passages come to mind of a new birth of a new life of a new way and so Ezekiel 11, now this is a little bit deeper cut, but he's a teacher in Israel. He should know the deeper cuts, right? He should know 
the, the, the farther passages in. Ezekiel 11. I will give them one heart, and I'll put a new spirit within them. Ezekiel eleven nineteen. I will take the heart of stone out of their flesh, and I will give them a heart of flesh. So they will walk in my statutes and keep my ordinances and do them. They will be my people, and I will be their God. Uh, the passage from Jeremiah that Steve used in Bible class, quoted in Hebrews. I will be their people, they'll be, I'll, you know, they'll be my people, I'll be their God, I'll walk with them. Jeremiah, Ezekiel, uh, here it is, uh, quoted in the book of Hebrews, it's quoted in 2 Corinthians 6. It's one of the great promises actually from Exodus. I will be your God, you will be my people. And so, the idea of being born again, the idea of being born again, that shouldn't have sounded so strange. That shouldn't have just bounced off Nicodemus like hitting a brick wall. That is a message that should have had a place to land. That should have uh, caused a resonance within him. That should not have been strange uh, to him. And so he goes, but how? You mean, how? how, how? I, I can't be born again. I've already been born in my mom once, you know, and like most guys, hey, I'm bigger than mom now. That would not work out. I've measured the womb. I'm not going to fit. How's that going to work? And so Jesus now explains. So the first thing we get, the be born again is the teaching. The explanation is in verse 5 then to answer the question. The explanation is, and again, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he can't enter the kingdom of God. For that which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of spirit is spirit. All right, so we're going to have two births. We're going to have a spiritual birth, and we're going to have a fleshly or a natural birth. And so if you, if you got here, you were born of a woman. Uh, I realize. Now, on legal documents in our society, we may have changed the name of that to parent one or something like that. And we may even say that that was a dude who had a baby. But no, it was a woman. It, naturally, it's a woman. And so that's how we all got here. We all got here of flesh, born of woman. And if we're going to be in the kingdom of God, we're going to have to be born again of water and the Spirit. Now we'll note when Nicodemus looks perplexed, as he will, in verse 7, when Jesus explains again, notice which part gets dropped off. The water part gets dropped off. And the Spirit part is taught, which tells me, as Jesus explains uh, some more, he explains the part that's confusing. You don't explain the part that, you know, if you're teaching a class, do you explain the part the kids got? Or do you explain the part the kids ain't got yet? And so I think that Nicodemus got the water part better than he got the spirit part. Now, again, I don't think these are two separate things, but this is that figure of speech where two things stand for one. It's a, it's a, uh, a rebirth of, of, we might say in English, to be, and it would be exactly equivalent of spiritual water or the water of the Spirit. Uh, all those are equivalent things to saying it's of water and the Spirit. I don't, I don't believe it's two separate things, but it's one. And again, uh, this is, is, the, is a metaphor for rebirth and renewal. Uh, Nicodemus, this should have rung a bell already. Again, again, a little deeper cut than, than Deuteronomy, but still something a teacher of Israel should have known. Is this from Ezekiel 36? 
And this is the only passage I know of that mentions both water and the Spirit in the same passage. Now, when I say passage, I don't mean the same verse. I mean in the same direct context, the same set of sentences as the passage. And there might be another one I overlooked because if you, if you go do a Bible search through your concordance, print it or computer either one, this one can hide from you because the word spirit and the word water are not in the same verse. There's actually a verse in between the two, but it's obviously the same context. And if you do a computerized search for these words, it won't show up because one is in verse 25 and one is in verse 27, but it's the same set of sentences. We don't speak just one sentence at a time, do we? Imagine if if you gave your children or you gave your uh, auditor or you gave uh, the policeman or you gave anybody in life, if you gave anybody in life a statement and they took pieces of it, one sentence at a time here and there, and they said, well, that was his instruction or that was what, that's his statement. That could easily twist things, right? We wouldn't we want him to read the whole paragraph maybe? So this one has water and the spirit together and it's about renewal. Ezekiel 36, he should have got this as a teacher of Israel. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you and you'll be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and of all your idols. Moreover, I'll give you a new heart and a new spirit. That's a big theme in Ezekiel. I'll give you a new heart and a new spirit within you. I'll remove from you the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. And you'll be careful to observe my ordinances. And so there is the sprinkling clean by sprinkling clean by water and the spirit being put within you. And we think about that sprinkling clean by water. What does that imagery come from? The Old Testament, right? What did they sprinkle on the people? What did they sprinkle on the altar? What did, they sprinkle blood and they sprinkle water. That's the things they sprinkle, right? They sprinkle blood and they sprinkle water. The same imagery is in Hebrews 10, with our hearts are sprinkled clean with pure water. I think is a direct allusion to this verse. So we have a sprinkling of clean water and we have the spirit being made put within us. And I think Jesus is telling us this prophecy that Ezekiel saw would come for the people. This prophecy is now being fulfilled. And he must have had a confused look on his face. He doesn't speak, but he must have had his eyes glaze over. Or he's sitting going, oh. he's doing something that gives indication that I don't even know what to say at this point because Jesus says, don't be amazed. When do you tell a person, don't be amazed? Right? So if, if I stopped at, the, at this point, if I stopped my sermon and said to the all in the audience, and maybe I should do this, and I stopped and said, y'all don't be confused. Nobody said a word. If we listened to the transcript of the tape, there wouldn't be a single word that was spoken. But why did I as a preacher stop and say, folks, don't be confused? Because some of y'all are looking confused, right? And so here, when there's no, there's no dialogue from Nicodemus, but Jesus says, hold on, don't be amazed. What do you think Nicodemus is right now? He's amazed. And so Jesus goes on now to explain a second time and simplify a second time. And what part does he leave off in the second time of simplification? He leaves off water. Because I don't think that was the part that was confusing Nicodemus. 
And if we think about, again, the time and place that this is said. The time and place that this is said is Jesus has been working for about four months, maybe, maybe six. John the Baptist has been working for about a year. What is John the Baptist doing? He's baptizing everybody, just about, except for a few holdouts. What's Jesus doing? He is, by this point, nearly baptizing more than John. The end of this chapter. We get down to John 3.23, John 3.22 and 3. After these things, Jesus and his disciples came to the land of Judea. So they leave, and they go from Jerusalem over there to uh, uh, the edge of the land of Judea. And it says, and there he was spending time with them and baptizing. The next thing Jesus does after this statement is go baptize people. And what's John doing at the same time? John also was baptizing in Anon near Salem because there was much water there and the people were coming and being baptized because John hadn't been thrown in prison yet. What does John do right up to the day he's thrown in prison? John baptizes. What's Jesus doing? He's baptizing. How many is he baptizing? Read chapter 4. We haven't gone many verses down from this text. Therefore, when the Lord knew the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself was not baptizing, his disciples were, so it was under his direct oversight. Under his direct oversight, they're baptizing more people than the guy who's named the Baptist. All right, so why could we drop water out of the explanation? Because what are the two prophets of God doing as they teach a lesson of, of repentance and moral reform and forgiveness? What are they doing? They're baptizing. And so what part do you think that Nicodemus probably understood of the water and spirit? Which part is Nicodemus getting better? And you think he is probably less likely to be totally amazed at? These guys are baptizing. Okay, so we can tie, I think, very clearly their baptizing work to this rebirth of water and the Spirit. So now he says and explains about the Spirit part. Because again, we're in simplification, explanation number two. He says, you must be born again. And again, it's by the Spirit. The wind blows as it wishes, and you hear the sound of it. But you don't know where it comes from and where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. So I'm repeating to you, be born again. And now I'm explaining it has to be done of the Spirit. Now one thing about the wind around here, we're pretty familiar with it, right? Some days it just has a weight to it. We can, I mean, we can just feel it. Some days it feels like a biting rebuke and a, and a nice sharp cold. Some day it's a nice, it's a nice gentle breeze. Some day it's a big rush and a mighty gust. There are some days where the only thing to do is, you know, uh, like the Bible says, uh, we, we try to hide under rocks and we ask the mountains to cover us uh, because, you know, the wind is coming. I, I mean, we go to a storm shelter, but we, we know the wind. We, we are familiar with the wind, but where does it come from? Where did you come from? Where did you go? No, I'm sorry, that's got my joke. Uh, but what's it doing? It's doing its own thing. But we know its effects. And so it is with John. John was out there preaching the powerful word of God, and so is Jesus. Romans 1.16, it's the power of God to salvation, right? The word of God, quick, powerful, sharp a two-edged sword. It's the sword of the Spirit, Ephesians 6. That powerful thing is out there being wielded. And publicans, the tax gatherers, 
the harlots, the prostitutes, the, the, the idolaters of the land. These people, many of them, are repenting. And you think about the Pharisees. The Pharisees have been around for 150 years. How many of these people they get to repent? Probably not that many. But here comes Jesus and John, and they preach this word with power, and people repent. This is what the prophecy was, as John would come in the spirit and power of Elijah. He'll restore the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to the fathers. And this message is preached to all, but it's accepted only by some. Why? Why? Why does the gospel reach some hearts and not others? I think this is part of the Spirit's work, that the Spirit is as the Spirit is. And we don't know the comings or goings of it. We just do our best to get in line with it. And if the Spirit's blowing this way, we're we're going there, right? I'm going to set my sail, cast firmly into what the Spirit leads and directs, and where is that going to end up? Wherever the Spirit takes us. And that will be safe in the arms of Jesus, I'm sure, when we get there. But sometimes it's a path we have no idea where it's going. And so, again, the, the teaching is be born again. What does that mean? Be born of water and the Spirit. And they were baptizing thousands and throngs and throngs as Jesus teaches this. And when that is met with amazement, he says, now, be born of the Spirit. And then Nicodemus says, again, verse 9, how can this be? The Spirit's doing its own thing, but I'm going to be born of the Spirit? Yeah. Jesus said, are you a teacher of Israel and don't understand? And so some of this he should have understood, which is why I think, again, those prophecies of renewal based on circumcision and based on a new heart from Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Deuteronomy, I think these should have instructed him in the way that this was going. But even though he says how a second time, he's, he's still not given a really harsh rebuke. Uh, he, he's, he's given you know some, some remonstrance. He's given some redirection here. Uh, he's given some further instruction. But he's not condemned or given threats or the like. Uh, those are for the hardened. He's not hardened. He's just a little slow right now today. And so Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know, and we testify of what we've seen, and you don't accept our testimony. So he says, we speak of what we know. Who's the we? I think it's Jesus and John. I think the we is Jesus and John. It's either that. It might be Jesus and the Father. I think it's probably Jesus and John, since here they are, the prophets who are speaking these things to the people at this point. He said, but you haven't accepted that yet. I think Nicodemus will eventually come to accept it, but he hasn't accepted it yet. He said, I told you, if I told you of earthly things, and you didn't believe, how will you believe if I tell you of heavenly things? So this being born again of water and the spirit of the spirit, I think Jesus is classing that as sort of the, the, some of the lower level teaching. There's higher level, there's more heavenly, there's more spiritual to come. How are you going to understand that? He said, but you need to know I'm the one from heaven. No one has ascended into heaven. But he who descended from heaven, the son of man. And then going back to Numbers 21, again, he's a teacher in Israel. He would know these things. We, we sometimes have to run down the reference and go, hold on, what was that again? This man would know. Moses lifted up the servant in the wilderness. Even so, the son of man must be lifted up. So that whoever believes in him will have eternal life. All right, there is our third simplification of the teaching. Believe. You have to be born again. 
Jesus said that twice. You're, when he explained it, you're born of water and the Spirit. When he explained it again, it's of the Spirit. And now he simplifies it down to the most basic level. You've got to believe in me. Now, if you believe in me, will all these things come? We believe they will come. But Nicodemus isn't to the point of belief yet. He's not an antagonist. But he's not yet to the point of belief. But belief is what this whole thing is about, right? Isn't that the whole point of the Gospel of John? Going back to John 1 and 12. But as many as receive him. What did he just tell Nicodemus to do? Believe in me, receive me. As many as received him. To them he gave the right to be children of God. Even those who believe in his name. Who were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. Well, if there's any difference between being born of the will of God and being born of the Spirit, or born of the water and the Spirit, I couldn't figure out what it would be. Because these have to be the same thing. Now, what happens with Nicodemus? We find him again. We find him again at the end of the Gospels. Uh, He's the man who shows up to claim the body of Jesus. Another man seemed to have got there just before him. Joseph of Arimathea. And Joseph says, I have a new tomb. And Nicodemus says, I have a hundred pounds of myrrh and aloe to bury him with. And so while Jesus literally was being lifted up, just as he spoke up to Nicodemus, Nicodemus seeing what that meant and seeing that happen, he went and got a hundred pounds of myrrh and aloe to bury Jesus with. Uh, I can't imagine that that's a normal amount. Just can't, that's an extravagant amount. He must have found every seller down at the market stalls and bought them all out. Or maybe he had a massive store of it at home for himself and his family for when those eventual days come. But either dipping into massive stores of his own or buying out everybody at the stalls downtown at the market. Maybe there was a sale when it went dark for three hours. I don't know. Like, what is, hey, let me buy some stuff. Hey, man, it's dark. Did you know, I need to buy that. Uh, but he, he, t- he shows up by the time Jesus is being buried with a massive amount of uh, materials to give Jesus a proper burial. And I can only think that he came to believe in what Jesus said. And so that's Nicodemus, where Nicodemus was when this was taught, and how Nicodemus, at the point of him being told this, should have understood it. Next time, Lord willing, how did the apostles apply that? To the apostles, what did it mean to be born again? What did water and the Spirit mean? What does it mean to be born of the Spirit? And what's it mean to believe? Because, as we see in John, we keep kind of jumping back and forth. We got the narrative up to this point, but we keep seeing the end of it. Well, let's think about some other people who were there. What did they take from this lesson? And what can we take from these lessons? That we have to be born again of the water and the Spirit, of the Spirit, and believe. Lord willing. That's next week. Thank you for listening to this sermon from the Mulvane Church of Christ. Additional sermons and information available at mulvanechurch.com. Come see what a difference the Bible way makes.